This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Episode 9. A study on Kratom's chemical composition asks, What does the little-researched alkaloid speciophylline do? And what are the implications for drug interactions and the differences in alkaloid content in Kratom products? It would be behoove us to just mention now, uh, for any of the podcast listeners, you know, we're, we're interested in hearing from y'all. If you have questions about anything related to, you know, Kratom uh, and Kratom science, uh, go ahead and just tweet it at Kratom Science and, and Jay Cachet. Um, if, you, if you have any other questions that have nothing to do with Kratom or science, uh, go ahead and just shoot them over to us anyway. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll explore it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. The study we're looking at today is chemical composition and biological effects of Kratom in vitro studies with implications for efficacy and drug interactions. This was published in Scientific Reports on November 5th, uh, so that's really recent. And this was done by... um, Todd was the uh, lead on that. Kellogg, I've seen his name before. I've seen it. Um, there was one other uh, Kratom study that they did uh, uh, that was also, it was called The Chemistry of Kratom, uh, published in July. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are all people from uh, university, a lot of people from UNC, University of North Carolina, where I used to work for eight years. I did assist in research in the nursing school, so... I, I I sometimes I sometimes put research assistant on my resume because it, but really I, I was just like copying. Uh, but I learned how to use PubMed there, so that's something. But anyway, it's all the same. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a Washington State High Point University. Um, so a team from a lot of different universities, uh, chemistry, uh, pharmaceutical sciences, and um, so what they did was. Uh, from the abstract says here we profiled 53 commercial kratom products using untargeted LCMS met- metabolomics, revealing two distinct chemotypes that contain different levels of the alkaloid speciophylline. Uh, oh, that was good. That wasn't bad. <laughs> that was a good try. And I just want to tell listeners, we couldn't even look this one up on Google because the alkaloid speciophylline has not been studied that much. Uh, uh, mitragenine and 7-hydroxymitragenine, which we're going to refer to as MG and 7-O, um, have been the two main alkaloids studied in Kratom. And so it says they're... Um, questions they asked in doing this study are what are the potential health imp- implications of the variability and chemical content of kratom preparations or products and it says our ultimate objective with this study was to capture the variable variability of commercial kratom products being employed by u.s consumers and to evaluate the potential implications of this variability in terms of safety and efficacy 
So there was a lot in this study that I didn't understand because they're getting into like molecular type of stuff. And um, there's a lot that, you know, a lot of the methods and stuff that I just trying to read, but it's, I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't know a lot of these words. So I'm going to rely <laughs> on you, Dr. John, to explain exactly what's going on here in this study. For sure. Yeah. We did have a lot of, a lot of analytical chemistry and a lot of, um, you know, I'd say intermediate to advanced statistical or, or data science analysis with the, with the principal components. Um, I just want to mention one more time real quick. So we're going to do metragenine. We're going to say M uh, seven hydroxy metragenine. We're going to say seven O and then for the speciophylline, uh, um, we're going to say S. Uh, uh, speciophylline or speciophylline. We're, we're very close. You know, we're very close no matter what. And the good thing is there's not really anybody on the internet that could tell us that we're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the guys that did this study could probably tell us, but who knows? Yeah. Yeah. A lot For of these sure. words are meant to be read and not uh, spoken in normal conversation. <laughs> And I'm not sure, did you mention, so this was published in Scientific Reports, which is a, a, nature, a nature publication. Um, and the publication date is 2020. And I think it- November it 5th. Scientific Reports. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. November 5th, 2020. So this is, this is hot off the presses. Yeah. Um, and uh, like you mentioned at the onset, there are sort of like several different phases they went through. You know, ultimately, they were starting from where most Kratom studies start saying, well, there's a discussion of this use of this uh, plant uh, and its alkaloids in the treatment of pain um, or as an opiate substitute. Um, but there's lack of information known, um, potential interactions that they were certainly uh, worried about in this paper. And so they decided to go on a, um, a, a data collection um, or data profiling expedition where they took 53 commercially available Kratom products and then um, analyzed the complete chemotype of Kratom alkaloids within those products. So they weren't just looking at levels of M, they weren't just looking at levels of uh, 7O, um, they were looking at I think 20 or maybe even 30 of the Kratom alkaloids uh, commonly found in the plant and what ended up happening, and I think we we'll just hint towards it now before we get into it, but what ended up happening was that the speciophylline S uh, ended up being the primary distinction between these two chemotype sets. Um, then we got into some uh, genetics, um, as well as some sort of in vitro uh, receptor binding uh, assays, um, all of which, you know, were to hopefully point to the potential, um, you know, biological effects uh, of differences in the chemotype. Yeah, and, and so people are listening here and you're gonna, um, trying to think, you know, how is this going to affect, you know, my kratom consumption or what does this mean for me? It's basically they they do a study that we've talked about before that kratom acts on opioid receptors in a way that's safer than classical opioids, number one. Uh, number two, the, the question of multiple multi-drug use. Does, does kratom slow down the liver enough to make it dangerous to use with other drugs? So the idea is essentially that if um, people are using this um, kratom in a therapeutic way, 
um, then it, it is important for them to have, uh, you know, to be able to trust what the label says for metragenine content, to be able to trust that when they're buying, you know, uh, the same, you know, kratom capsule or the same kratom extract from the same manufacturer that batch to batch to batch, it's going to have the same general concentrations of alkaloids in it. Um, and so they set out to say, um, okay, <clears throat> there's more than uh, 40 structurally related alkaloids that have that could have uh, biological activity or therapeutic value in kratom. Let's just look at 53 different commercial, you know, retail kratom products and see how much variance is in those alkaloids in that too much variance could lead to different therapeutic effects. And so they wanted to see if there was, um, you know, uh, broad similarities between these different commercial creating products or if there were differences. And so then that leads us into the two chemotypes. Okay. And see a lot of, uh, the people who buy Kratom, um, they they even well they were even uh, they even did a test that said is this mitragena speciosa or are these all actually kratom and they came up with yes they are um, but a lot of people who buy kratom products seem to classify them into red green and white strains which is not exactly because there's only a couple different strains of trees and they don't have anything to do with the color that has more to do with the drying process so in general people think red makes uh you know it's more of a mellow uh white is the speedy one and green in between people realize when they start getting it from different vendors that that doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily consistent a lot with different batches of kratom it's not necessarily about the color the kratom products that they they found here do vary and and but how how variable is that so they were expecting to find some like they were expecting to find more similarities between the different commercial products that they investigated and what they ended up finding was like these two distinct groups and so um they were then concerned that maybe some of these products aren't the most classical sort of variety of uh, the metragenine or family, right? There's yeah. like, I think, several different types of um, like metragenine blank, metragenine, like in terms yes. of plants. Yeah. Um, and so they were concerned, like, gosh, we found these differences here and the differences were, were relatively significant. Um, I wonder if some of these are different, you know, subspecies within this plant family. Um, and it ended up being that they were not. Um, and so they essentially said, okay, well, we did find all of this chemotypic variance, um, a, a pretty substantial degree. I mean, to, um, down in table one, uh, they mentioned on how, uh, these K50, 51, 52, and 55 were, uh, different sample codes of commercial products. And there was, I think, essentially, um, I think it was like four to 10 times or fold difference, or that might've been with the receptor binding studies, but like there was a significant difference, um, especially when it came to the, to the S molecule, the S alkaloid that we're talking about to where like it was some 40, 40 X difference between this, the ones that had very little of it, or they had a lot of it. So metragenine content in the commercial samples varied by four fold while the speciophylline content varied by more than 90 fold Nine, with yeah. a min minority of samples appearing in the high S group and then all the rest going into the low S group. Um, 
but the, the variance there and what you were talking about with the different colors. So they were saying they ended up being all the same genetics. So how can we attribute, what can we attribute to causing this difference in the chemotypes and the, in the alkaloid content? And so that's when you get into things like the growing conditions, you know, what was the humidity? What was the temperature? What was the environment in which they were uh, grown in like, and also a big asterisk on that potential list that can lead to this variance um, is different lengths um, and different in like sort of clim climatic conditions or environmental conditions when the plants, uh, when the leaves are being dried uh, and cured. And so from what I've read and correct me if, if I'm, if I'm off here, if there's something new, but like essentially the difference between the red veins and the greens and the whites is how long you let it cure or dry for, or how mm -hmm. dry you let it get, you know, whether it's in the sun or whether it's not. And so um, while I agree with you 100% that most of those colors are used for marketing purposes, not um, sort of scientific purposes, mm -hmm. um, there, there can be alkaloid differences between those different colors. The thing is that I think the most important thing, which you, which you hinted to when, when you were talking about it, is that essentially, just because it's a red doesn't mean that every single red is gonna treat or affect you the same. You know, yeah. there's no consistency, a repeatable, like over long-term repeatable between always doing red or always doing green or always doing white. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that we hint on that, that sort of nuance there. They said it's an oxindole alkaloid, whereas uh, uh, MG and 7O are indole alkaloids. So what, what's the difference between indole and oxindole? In, indole just refers to, um, refers to like the base skeleton structure of what the metragenite is like built on. Um, so while there is a chemical distinction in the actual structure of these molecules, they're still within the same family of being alkaloids from kratom. So even though there's a difference in terms of how we you know, refer to them based on that skeletal structure, they are still alkaloids that are very similar to the structure of metragenine or the 7O. Um, and there was reason there's, there's, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to believe or think that, well, maybe this uh, S molecule also shows um, uh, uh pain relieving or opiate substitute uh, therapeutic value, just like metragenine and seven, eight, or the seven O. Um, but interestingly, uh, they found something different. Okay. So we found significant variance between all 50 of these, um, all 53 of these products that we uh, looked at. What is, what is, how can we separate those? Are there sort of clusters of similarities? Are there different chemotypes that sort of cluster together? And so that's the point of a principal component analysis. You're essentially looking at, you know, for every 50, every one of these 53 commercial products, they ran it through the LCMS and they got a report back on the concentrations or the, the amount of 40 some kratom alkaloids in that plant, right? So you have 53 by 40 um, in terms of the data set that you're looking at uh, and, and the concentrations there. Does that make it sense? So the variables yeah. are that big, 53 by 40. And so what principal component analysis allows you to do is essentially take a, a very large um, multivariate complex data set and examine different combinations of those variables such that you're maximizing, you're like, you're minimizing the differences, you're, you're minimizing the differences or increasing the similarity by those that are close together, but maximizing it by those that are closer apart. So you're essentially trying to split it into different groups based on how, how similar and dissimilar 
all of these different points are to, to them. And then the, the other added value uh, of PCA is that it essentially reduces the number of variables um, that you're, you're looking at. Like, so it reduces the complexity and, and the scope and the size of the variable data set that you're looking uh, into without reducing or affecting the statistical significance of those differences. Um, yeah, so basically when they ran the, the PCA, they said, oh shit, this, this S uh, alkaloid um, is what's causing, you know, which is the primary driving factor that led us to discover these two uh, chemotypes. We have the high S, we have the low S. Um, and then from there, they were essentially like, well, what does this S even do? In the one part, it says, in contrast, S does not bind at the opioid receptors and does not exhibit functional activity via the mu opioid receptor. Um, further studies are warranted to characterize S and determine if the ligand may induce antinociception or other activities through non-opioid receptor systems. So does that mean they essentially tried to find out and couldn't, don't know what it does? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, you led with the conclusion there, right? So that's what they found. And, it, and it's a pretty interesting finding in and of itself, right? So they said, we found all this variability. It's due to the concentrations of S. We have high S and low S. They said, well, hold on a second. Let's double check to make sure we don't have different genetics here. Uh, they did their genetic analysis. They did a, you know, a blast um, analysis. And essentially what they found was that these are all the same species uh, of M. spinoza, right? It's not the M. diversifolia or, you know, the other ones, right? Yeah. So it's all the same genetics. Um, and then they said, okay, you know, this is, this is something that, that was true um, to the alkaloid content. So then they went in and said, okay, what, what is the potential biological activity or the implications of a high S and a low S being in the marketplace? And to examine that, they did several sort of um, alkaloid profile uh, studies where they looked at, say, okay, um, metragenine and 7O bind to the opiate receptor family. They're partial agonists on those opiate receptors. Um, let's see if S is also that. Um, and what they found was that not only does, you know, not only does S not bind to the opiate receptors, it also doesn't um, resemble uh, the sort of downstream uh, cellular signaling, you know, pathways that, that unfold um, the same way that, that M and SO do. So, I mean, it's pretty amazing to say, we don't know a lot about all of these 40 alkaloids. We know a lot about M, we know a lot about uh, 7O. We don't know anything about S. Let's, we can make, a, it, it would be a reasonable assumption to say, well, it probably binds and hits the same receptors that, that M and, and 7O do. Lo and behold, it does not. So there, the issue of uh, cytochrome P450, CYPs, these are uh, liver enzymes. Um, what they uh, one of their uh, headlines in the in the report was high S and low S kratom extracts have similar inhibitory effects on three major CYPs in vitro. So and it also says kratom extracts and mitragynine have been tested as inhibitors of several CYPs. So what this suggests is in the liver, it, it kratom slows down the metabolism of possibly other drugs. Um, and so right. you said you had a problem with that. So what was your issue with that? Well, you know, I think 
the reason why at least it it stood out to me was sort of how drastic they were um, proclaiming that this potential danger can be. And right, so I want to be careful to just to make sure like um, I'm not minimizing it too much. Yeah. Um, but these CYP enzymes are like an enormous super family of degradation enzymes in the liver. There are hundreds, if not thousands of them. They're in almost every biological species on the planet. Um, and so uh, this family essentially, you know, let's say, so if you're taking a, a prescription opiate um, or some, you know, just any sort of drug or plant alkaloid, um, as it courses through your body, you know, eventually the body has to break it down and uh, get rid of it. So the CYP super family of enzymes performs this function, breaking down, you know, foreign molecules or active molecules in your bloodstream and uh, getting rid of them out of your body. So the, the risk is, and this is, you know, theoretically the risk is, well, if you're taking something that blocks these degradation enzymes, and so the, they're not, um, you know, removed from your body at the rate in which they normally would, you're going to have more in your bloodstream. You're going to have a higher concentration for a longer amount of time in your bloodstream, and that could potentially lead to dangerous side effects. Um, in that, you know, your body's just not uh, processing it as as fast as it normally would. Mm. Um, I tried to just search for okay, give me an example of a, a completely fatal drug interaction with the CYPs. Like, what's the worst? Are people like, is there is there ever a situation where you could take? Uh, you know, compound A and compound B, and then all of a sudden, you, you know, you're essentially dead. I couldn't find anything that was like explicitly, you know, fatal interaction. Um, and, and again, I don't want to minimize the drug to drug interactions here. It's something that every, everyone should always be aware about. But it, it seemed to me like the, be, the, the, the two worst examples I could find was birth control, wherein if you're inhibiting these enzymes, the birth control, um, the, the the effectiveness of the birth control can be modified to a significant extent. So you could become pregnant. You know, I would say that's, well, not fatal, you know, certainly, uh, you know, certainly a, an unwanted outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one is with like warfarins or, um, and other anticoagulant blood uh, medications. So, you know, if you are, and this generally happens as people get older in age and, they, and they're taking these anticoagulants and warfarins and these blood, um, these blood, blood medications. But, you know, if you can, if you're taking, if you're on too many anticoagulants and you get a cut, you know, just see, let's just say it's a, a minor cut, nothing bad, um, but your body can't start coagulating and forming a scab it could lead to potentially dangerous effects in that you're going to lose too much blood. You're never going to heal the, the open wound. And, you know, that could be potentially risky. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I mean, broadly speaking, everything has interactions with the CYPs. And, you know, I, I know that there are probably plenty of our listeners who have read somewhere on Earwood or Reddit that, you know, if you take grapefruit juice, um, in addition to whatever, you know, sort of buzz you're looking for, you know, from whatever compound, the compounds in grapefruit will block these CYP enzymes and, you know, supposedly, quote unquote, you will increase the effects and sort of the like the length and the amount or the, the threat, like the to the degree yeah. in which you feel the effects of those um, of those drugs, you know, but even then. I would say that's probably 60% placebo effect, you know, it's not um, necessarily 
that it that it is doing it at a, at a physiological level to where you would actually necessarily notice that. So, you know, I think I, I was objecting to it because of how many times it came up. It was almost on every single page they sort of laid out this broad, you know, super uh, warning about like, you know, we found that it had high S and if it has high S, you know, people are taking it and they're going to potentially die because the CYPs are getting inhibited. And it's like, well, you know, again, let's just, let's, let's get less doomsday about this. Um, and it, it could have been mentioned and it would have been valid to mention it, but to like continually raise the alarms and like, you know, um, tell people that, uh, it's a huge risk for adverse interactions to the point to where like maybe Kratom shouldn't even be legal, uh, which just a little bit <laughs> yeah. too far for me. And, you know, and I don't know if you noticed too, but like I was, it was interesting to me how, um, how, how much of the degree to which they framed the use of Kratom uh, as this like highly controversial, um, you know, people report these things. So yeah. it, thus the controversy over the use and effectiveness of Kratom was documented nearly a hundred years that, ago. That, I wrote that down because that was weird. Here, yeah. Here's the controversy. According to Red, according to Red Lee, my tragedy speciosia is used in Parak uh, town against the opium habit whilst this is 1921, uh, right. Ellen Field, <laughs> a scientist, while, whilst, according to Dr. P.P. Laidlaw, <laughs> his name's P.P., I didn't notice that one, Dr. P.P. <laughs> Laidlaw, definitely 1921, uh, my tragedine is a local anesthetic, and their conclusion to this quote is thus, controversy over use and effectiveness of Kratom was documented nearly 100 years ago. Well, they could have been using it for both things. Well, how is that controversial? Like right, it could be right. a local and anesthetic are... and an opiate cessation tool. Yeah, both things are essentially like within, they're like, you know, just analogous to each other. They're not synonyms, but they're, you know, definitely uh, close in the, in the thesaurus. You know, there are differences with local anesthetics, um, you know, like Novocaine is a local anesthetic um, and the mechanisms that how those work to like make your, you know, whatever that you're rubbing it on or putting it on go numb, just localized in your mouth, for example, is much different than um, how opiates, you know, opiates provide pain relief, but they're systemically distributed throughout your entire body. So they're, they're, you could get nitpicky about that, but, you know, to me, you know, I, instead of saying, you know, instead of trying to like continue to hype up this controversy and the fact that this controversy still exists today, mine would have been thus, um, the use and effectiveness of Kratom was documented nearly a hundred years ago as a, uh, uh, something to, um, defeat the opium habit, right. Something to help with opiate addiction. That would have been the takeaway for me. We knew that a hundred years ago. So in their discussion, it says now on the basis of our studies, it's, it is reasonable pr to predict that, that individuals who self-administer Kratom tea to treat pain, addiction, or depression might achieve very different results depending on the alkaloid profile of the product they use. You know, so that was their hypothesis right but then they said you know in order for that to be true the molecules that define the the difference right so these two groups it's s that defines the the sort of major two clusters of the chemotypes and these kratom uh products um so they said well let's see what it binds to so in order for you to 
um, actually have and perceive differences in uh, kratom products based on this difference in alkaloid profiles, the alkaloids would have to affect you differently. Um, and so it's just interesting because they found that S has no activity at the opiate receptors. Now, so it doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's very plausible that it could be operating in, in, in other receptors and other signaling systems, but um, it just does not uh, have an appreciable affinity for any of the opiate receptors. And so just on face value of that alone, if it's not modulating the opiate receptors any differently, then that's a, you know, that's evidence that says maybe the difference in alkaloid profiles is not that significant. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's yeah. valuable. This is sort of a cool study in that like they really went deep to try to figure out how S functions compared to M and 7O. Um, but it ended up being that it's way completely different, an entirely new sort of ballpark uh, of receptor interactions there. Um, and so at least we can check off the list that S doesn't interact with the opiate system. Like then the, it's on, on for the next people to figure out what it actually does interact with. And then, you know, so now we're talking about three of the alkaloids of all the 40 alkaloids, it, you know, are there, is there a whole subset that does not interact with the opiate system and it interacts with X um, or is it like just S that, that displays these um, characteristics? Pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Another section was like in any nociception assays, uh, 7-0 exhibits 40-fold greater potency than MG, 10-fold greater potency than morphine, whereas MG is less potent than morphine. Uh, interestingly, a recent study by Krugel at uh, all shows that MG can be converted into 7-0 both in vitro and in a mouse model. Therefore, some of the in vitro activity attributed to MG may be, in fact, due to the action of it metabolizing it uh, as 70. So, like, they were. I I read this study, and like, when orally administered MG converts to 70, doesn't it contradict the previous findings that MG is a safer or less potent than 70 since it since it converts it's metabolized into 70. So um not necessarily clarified a little bit, right? Okay. So um 70 has a much stronger binding affinity to the opiate receptors. Um I think that um 70 is sort of several fo fold more potent than uh morphine, um but then the metragenine is not more potent than morphine. Um, and so I think, you know, what they're essentially describing here with the conversion is that I'm just going to make the units just unknown. So let's say you have a hundred M and you have like two seven O in terms of the, the amount uh, that you ingested from the, from the onset. Mm. What they're basically saying is that, you know, by the time it gets to be biologically active in your system, it could be down to like 80 M and 2270. So um, it is true that the 70 is stronger and has a higher binding affinity yeah. and is more um, intense in, in terms of activating the opiate system. Um, but I haven't seen any sort of evidence that suggests like, you know, 50%, 70%, 80% of M 
is converted to 7-0. It's a, it's a small percent, probably about 30, you know, 20 or 30% that ultimately gets tripped over. And, you know, it, it could lead to physiological differences, um, but, you know, it's just, it's unknown the rate at which that transition can occur and if it occurs in everybody and, and when it occurs in the process. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I was, you know, because a lot of the times, uh, you know, they're saying uh, some of these extracts contain more uh, 7-0, so therefore we should have an alkaloid profile that's exactly like uh, the fresh leaf material, and so then it wouldn't be dangerous. Uh, but it's dangerous if there's more 7-0. Like, and kind of that Krugel study, I the conclusion, I one of the conclusions I came to was, well, maybe it doesn't matter since it's all being, you know, some of the MG is metabolized into 7-0. Is it really more dangerous to take Kratom with more 7-0 in it? So yeah, I, I would I just know. qualify by saying is potentially like more intense. Okay. Um, dangerous, dangerous uh, I think too strong of a word. Um, yeah. And the other, the other thing is like, I'm unaware of any extract or any Kratom product that has more 7-0 in it than it does M. Like it's just the case that M is found at concentrations of hundreds, you know, maybe a hundred milligrams. Okay. And 7-0 is two milligrams. And so yeah. the reason why I bring this up is like, then if you were going to make an extract that had more 7-0 in it than it did M, you would literally have to put all of that like processing effort and analytical chemistry effort into pulling out the M and adding in more 7-0. And like, it's just like, you know, which I don't um, think any of these vendors are going to do. <laughs> no, it makes no economic sense. It, ma it makes no economic sense. It, that's kind of like, uh, you know, don't buy marijuana. It might be laced with cocaine or something. Uh, I'm like, well, that wouldn't be, that would be like a b bonus uh, money wise there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? uh -huh. Like, why would the dealer be so kind? Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the, thinking about the cannabinoids is a good way to sort of think about what I was just saying with the M and 7-0 in that, like, can, most cannabis has high levels of THC, let's say anywhere from, you know, 15 to 28% THC. Um, and there are, you know, maybe like a half a percent of CBC. So if you wanted to make like a, an oil or a vape cartridge that had more CBC in it than THC, you would literally have to process like a hundredfold uh, of the amount of plant material, then pull out the THC and just concentrate, 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 concentrate the CBC to where like, you know, you're spending all day. Let's say you, you burn through a hundred pounds and you've got like half a vape cartridge of CBC. It's just not, it doesn't make sense for all the sort of um, like warning statements or like alarming statements they put in here about drug interactions or controversy related to, uh, kratom alkaloids. The one that they were like pretty straightforward and open about was the fact that metragenine and 7-O uh, do not recruit beta arrestin. Um, and the fact that it doesn't recruit beta arrestin is, and they say, an important factor separating the analgesic effect from the adverse effects of typical opiates, such as abuse, liability, respiratory depression, and constipation. And so, um, the failure to recruit beta arrestin le 
it essentially is a hypothesis that says there's less abuse liability, there's less respiratory depression, and there's less constipation potential, you know, the sort of negative effects of your typical opiates um, in the kratom alkaloids. Um, so they were looking at that as well as uh, uh, CM production. Um, but because S does not bind to any of the opiate receptors, there's no sort of functional activity at the opiate receptors. So there would be no like opportunity to produce or not produce the downstream effect of recruiting that beta, beta arrestin. Okay. And now what, what does beta arrestin actually do? And does it, um, you know, actually affect the respiratory system? When an opiate binds to one of the opiate receptors, which is a G coupled protein, it changes the like shape of that receptor. And then once that happens, there's downstream effects. And then it starts recruiting different um, cell surface, like signaling molecules. And so arrestins are um, a, it's a type of protein that's in the cell wall that has to do a lot with regulating signal transduction at these G-coupled protein receptors. Um, so the, the G-coupled protein gets activated, signal transduction starts, beta arrestin sort of comes into the, the mix as well and interacts with them. Uh, and then it changes that signal transduction uh, downstream. Um, so, you know, I think broadly speaking, that's what I know about the arrestin family. I don't know specifically the details yeah. about why beta arrestin two is, is related to, you know, tolerance and, and abuse liability. I mean, essentially, um, if, if beta arrestin is activated, something it could do is basically say, Oh, this, this, this receptor has been activated for too long. I'm going to get a, a bunch more arrestins and we're going to tag this receptor with uh, the beta arrestins. And then that will be a signal to the cell to pull the opiate receptor inside the cell to take it off the cell surface. Yeah. When there's a reduction of those, those surface receptors, that leads to tolerance, you know, physiological tolerance. Yeah. So if it doesn't recruit that, there's no way for the beta arrestin to sort of um, then lead to the induction of the receptors. You know, I think the take home overall on this study was there is significant alkaloid variance of the 40 kratom alkaloids in commercial products on the market. Um, that could potentially lead to different therapeutic effects um, and maybe some being positive, maybe some being negative. Um, so they were concerned about this, all this variability in the alkaloid content and they uh, wanted to investigate what was, you know, what was the main reason for the, the two groups. They found the S molecule and that essentially everything else after that, you know, they were comparing uh, M and 7O to, to morphine and Damgo. Damgo is just another um, sort of opiate activation or it's an, it's, it binds with opiate receptors. Um, so, you know, they were comparing all of these to morphine and then they also had the S in there. Um, and this would be the first ever published study that does a assessment of receptor binding of S at opiate receptors. And, and that's significant, you know, even if the, the result is uh, it doesn't bind, you know, that's, that is um, not binding is different from binding. Um, so at least we know that now. And so it'd be, it would be interesting to, I know creative science, you guys have that um, page that has all of the different alkaloids in there. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I could just see, you know, something interesting coming together where, where 
sort of taking note of these things. Like we have a, a chart or a table where it's like, you know, M binds to uh, mu, gamma, and delta, or yeah. kappa. Uh, 7O binds to it. And then S doesn't bind to it. So it's sort of like a question mark. Well, where does it bind? What What is it binding to? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we're slowly ticking away and making progress in uh, understanding the uh, other alkaloids in, in the plant. You know, I, I think that's probably our most frequently uh, asked question is, tell me about some other alkaloids uh, yeah. besides M and 7O or how that may lead to better antidepressant behavior or, or effects. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if we, I don't know if we're like, you know, providing some banner, you know, headline or that says, uh, hey, this binded to this and therefore this, we got a negative result, but that's still valuable to know. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we'll just see where we go from here um, as we further characterize these uh, related kratom alkaloids. Yeah. And so this was a pretty good study then uh, as far as uh, understanding the uh, S, understanding Superman. Understanding Superman, <laughs> understanding the S, and also, you know, just uh, acknowledging or confirming this alkaloid variance. Um, yeah. You know, we haven't had any evidence that this variance does lead to differential effects, but we haven't had any evidence to the opposite of that either. Um, so at least we're, we're digging in and, and making some, you know, small incremental progress, such as the, the world of science. Thanks again, Dr. Cachet. Check him out at jcachet on Twitter, ccvresearch.com. The music is Captain Big Wheel. The song is called Moon Runner. Kratom Science Journal Club is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.